0: Welcome to the Cine Matchups podcast. We are your hosts, Kim Kohler and Sean Rodenberg, and we are back for a- another matchup. We're moving on to a new matchup seed. Today, we have a two versus 15 matchup. So the first of our two versus 15 matchups with Argo, which is our second seed versus I am number four, which is our 15th seed. So going into the statistics of these movies, we're going to see some pretty drastic differences in the Rotten Tomatoes critic consensus scores for both of these movies. We'll start with Argo that comes in at a 96% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes, which is pretty impressive for being a second seed in this bracket. It tells you a lot about what our first seeds are probably at. Argo is based on the 1999 novel by U.S. CIA operative Tony Mendez called Called The Master of Disguise, also based on a 2007 Wired article by Joshua Bierman titled How the CIA Used a Fake Sci-Fi Flick to Rescue Americans from Tehran, which really tells you everything about the entire plot of the movie, in case a, you're
1: curious. It's exactly what happens.
0: It's a great article title. No frills on that one. Uh, was made in 2012 into film by Ben Affleck, who directed this, produced also by George Clooney. So we have double Batmans in this movie.
1: Double Batmans.
0: Arguably two Batmans that aren't so great, but I know people will fight me on the Ben Affleck Batman. Uh, so that's a little fun fact in there. Another fun fact, this was actually the last film Roger Ebert chose as film of the year because he died in 2013. So this was his final Best Film of the Year.
1: Good one to go out on.
0: Yeah. Was nominated for seven Oscars, including Best Picture, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Film Editing, Score, Supporting Actor for Alan Arkin, Sound Mixing and Sound Editing. Of those seven, it won three it won Best Picture, it won Adapted Screenplay, and won Film Editing. A lot of issues with Oscars that year with Ben Affleck not being nominated for Best Director. A lot of people saying he got robbed for that. I believe he did as well. He was very humorous about it, though. I read something in an interview where he said, well, I was a nominated for Best Actor, too, and nobody's <laughs> complaining about that. So what does that tell you? Which I thought was funny. He had some humor behind it. And then we go to I am number four, which doesn't have as heavy or at all of an awards presence, comes in at a 33 percent approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes based on the 2010 novel by Pittacus Lore, which is a pseudonym of James Frey and Joby Hughes. The film was picked up in 2011, directed by DJ Caruso, who also did Disturbia, produced by Michael Bay. Huge bidding war for this movie between DreamWorks, J.J. Abrams, Spielberg.
1: Are we shocked Shia LaBeouf wasn't in this?
0: (laughs) I know. No. So huge bidding war for this movie because it was a teen sci-fi novel turned movie, they thought it was going to do real well, came out around the same time that the Twilight series was coming out. So huge bidding war. And needless to say, it turned out to be a huge disappointment. It was slotted for six sequels and we have not seen a sequel
1: of it. It was actually a really good time to buy if that trend was still going because Harry Potter was wrapping up and so was Twilight. And I think you're just going for movies that teens are going to attach to.
0: Specifically, f- fantasy sci fi genres. It worked for two franchises that turned into just mega hits, like
1: both pop of culture them, culture
0: phenomenon, both of them
1: right in a row. Right. So, why not just try and grab the next one for a ton of money?
0: Yeah. So, probably not the worst bidding war to get into, but, but huge disappointment. What uh, was the
1: next one? I'm trying to think. I, can't think of anything. What's the newest teen movie sensation? They tried
0: that Divergent series and then the Hunger Games.
1: Ah, okay. Yeah.
0: Yeah. But anyway, so for this movie, it turned out to be a huge disappointment a fun thing I like to do is always look at the award nominations for all of the movies. And usually it's like nominated for one Oscar and 52 others. It does not or nominated for two golden globes and 60 others. There's always some others. There's always smaller award ceremonies that things are nominated for just little things here and there. I've seen that with pretty much every movie we've reviewed so far. This one has one single award nomination just one. It was nominated for a People's Choice Award for Best Book Adaptation. It did not win, but it was nominated.
1: Oh, okay. I guess. I don't know how many books were adapted in that year, so it might have just made the cut.
0: (laughs) It might have. And also, I just found it really interesting and funny that it was nominated for one total award out of every single award ceremony that exists in the entire world, like internationally, to nominate for one award. So that's the two statistics of the movie. We will talk themes, we will talk strengths and weaknesses. I think we're going to have a hearty bunch of strengths and weaknesses for both of these movies, and we will battle it out until we have one winner. This is another podcast that I think you guys are going to realize what our winner is immediately, and pretty quickly. But we're going to have a lot of fun with it, I promise. So let's get right into it and talk themes. So the main theme we found is pretty obvious in both of these movies was that the main characters are using false identities throughout the entire movie. And as we discussed with Argo, it's about Tony Mendez, a CIA agent who used the premise of a fake sci-fi flick and him being a location scout going to all of these areas to find a location to shoot this And then the six, the Americans that he needed to rescue, being certain parts of the film crew, had a screenwriter, we had a director, so-and-so-and-so. So he used a fake identity throughout it, used this whole fake ploy to get these Americans out of Iran. And then we have I Am Number Four, where the plot is a little murkier, but we have a character named John Smith.
1: The worst fake identity
0: Ever. (laughs) So it's this guy and his name, fake name is John Smith. I don't know if they ever reveal his real name. No. Honestly, wasn't paying too much attention to the details of this movie.
1: His official name, I guess, would be number four, because at some point another number comes in and her official name is number six. Yes. So.
0: But he is John Smith because although he is instructed by Timothy Oliphant's character Henry to stay hidden and to keep a low profile and don't post any photographs of himself anywhere, he decides to enroll in high school and decides to pick his name as John Smith going into high school. So he uses that fake identity throughout the entire movie until slowly but surely some of the characters, including his girlfriend and his friend, find out what he actually is and these powers that he has. So two movies using fake identities. I think one clearly better than the other in that theme. I don't think there's
1: any arguing on that. Absolutely not. Do you want to do something fun? Sure. Do you want to try and think of worse fake names than John Smith?
0: I don't think those exist. Homer
1: Simpson. That's the only one I got.
0: Anything from pop culture. Like if he was going in there and was like, my name's Harry Potter. <laughs> okay, man. But yeah, it, just really terrible. And also when he says his name, the other people don't believe him. This one girl who he ends up liking and I don't know becoming his girlfriend, maybe she is a photographer and takes pictures of him on the first day of school, the first day he's there, he fucks it up. And she posts John Smith in quotes on some random blog website of all of her photography
1: of all these people from school, which is kind of creepy. But there's something about this girl, man.
0: Yeah, it's a weird movie. And honestly, we might not sound super confident talking about this movie because I still don't understand the plot.
1: He was number four and he had to get away.
0: Yeah, that's it. It seems very simple. It seems like they tried to do more stuff with like aliens and shit like that. And they just didn't really land on it. So that being said, I know we're going pretty quickly because there's not a whole lot of things to say about this theme of people using fake identities. It's just what it is. They just did it. Yep. That's just what they did. And it's the whole basis around the entire film, but there's a lot of different plot points we want to hit. So very quickly, we're going to go right into strengths and weaknesses and talk about this movie. Perfect. So let's just keep with I am number four and we'll start really fun and just talk about all of the weaknesses of I am number four. So back to what I was saying with the plot, they try to explain the plot in about 15 seconds of the movie With Henry's character talking to John Smith and being like, hey, this is why you have to stay hidden. And this is why people have died for you and why you're important. And then they never touch that ever again. And you're just assumed to have to know all of these things.
1: Do you think this movie falls a little flat because they did buy this as six movies? So they thought they could skimp on the first movie because they were just going to jam pack movies two through six full of junk.
0: But that's the wrong way to go. If you don't get people to buy into the first movie, I'm not going to want to watch. I would never watch a sequel to this movie. How boring. I don't care what happens to these people. The whole first movie was boring. It didn't hook you in. So that's a terrible way of going about things.
1: Yeah, well, most studios don't buy six movies right off the bat. It worked
0: for Harry Potter. They set up a initial movie. They set up the first movie. It grabbed people in enough that it got a following. And I think look at maybe books that didn't do as well, but were still popular. Even the Divergent series got sequels. The Hunger Games got
1: sequels. Well, even the Percy Jackson movie. I was just
0: going to say The Lightning Thief.
1: But that got one sequel and that's it. But there are some in there that are cautionary tales because some of these didn't work out and i think they should have noticed that that it wasn't just a for sure thing and maybe just bought one movie and saw how it went
0: but they were really riding the high of these teen movies because some of the movies we talked about came out after this movie came out so they didn't know that it maybe the genre and maybe the allure of these movies were dying down a little bit they thought it would just keep going and building momentum so i totally understand why But this movie also was just really poorly made. It was poorly scripted. There's the a script
1: was awful.
0: So one of my absolute favorite lines in this film is coming at the very beginning. So Henry and John Smith go to this secluded house slash cabin to hide out. And it's told very explicitly to him that he needs to keep a low profile and stay inside and that Henry's there to watch over him. And they walk in and for whatever reason there's a poster Of a random football player on the wall. And so Henry goes, that's Bernie Kosar. He played football. The poster is of him throwing a football in full (laughs) uniform during a game on the field. Why do you need to add he played football? in explaining that. That's how bad this script was. It was so dumbed down. And I get it's a teen movie, but you can make a teen movie with a good script. It doesn't have to be dumb.
1: I have another bad football quote, which makes me think that this movie is just terrible football quotes. So John Smith is talking to the bully of school, and that's Mark James. And Mark James says to him, Because he's the quarterback, he's talking to John about things that a quarterback needs. And he says the quarterback needs a few things, speed, strength and intuition. Do you know who the slowest people on a football field are most of the time? (laughs) The quarterback. Do you know who usually is not the strongest person on the football field besides for actually throwing the ball? The quarterback. (laughs) Literally. Every other position is both faster and stronger than the quarterback. So I'm very confused why he thought that those two things made a good quarterback.
0: Devil's advocate, this is a 16-year-old with a huge ego and superiority complex.
1: I guess, but everyone knows who Tom Brady is and he's slow. (laughs)
0: I guess. But the football references don't stop coming in this movie. I watched a YouTube clip of a really hilarious scene after we watched this movie. And there's a point in time where these guys, Mark, and the rest of his cronies are basically just bullying John Smith. And reading YouTube comments is super funny. So they have this scene where John Smith like beelines a ball straight into one of these bullies chest, like throws it at like 200 miles per hour into this guy's
1: chest. By the way, let me stop you real quick. After you tell this story, I do have something on this scene. So I'd like to stay. On
0: oh, perfect. It. Perfect. We'll, we'll keep going. So. The bully like flies backwards into a bush and everyone just kind of looks like, oh, that was nobody's like, hey, this kid threw a 200 mile per hour football at this guy. But the YouTube comments are hilarious because some of them are like, why is this attractive as fuck guy being bullied? No kid who's that attractive gets bullied That's a generality, of course, but I thought it was just funny to put in there. And then another flaw that I think this movie had that the YouTube comments also pointed out was it's incredible what you can do being in high school in your late 20s. (laughs) Because the actor who played John Smith is clearly not 15 years old. He
1: He has five o'clock shadow.
0: Yeah, he is Way, way older than what high school looks like because you have Sam, his best friend, who looks like an actual tiny, normal looking high school student. Even Diana Agron, who plays Sarah, looks a little bit more high school. She was coming off a glee, so she was also believable as a high school student. But this kid looks nothing like a high school student. So that scene was hilarious for a ton of reasons and then some that you're going to talk about.
1: I just liken it to another movie scene that also confuses me every time I watch it. But I love the movie, so I let it go. And the scene starts out. They throw this football at the nerdy kid, belt him in the head real hard and he falls down. So then John Smith picks it up And chucks the football as hard as he can. And he knocks the kid over. So it's weird that he also hit him right in the chest. Like a really good pass. And they were like, what the hell? Even though they just threw it as hard as they could at another kid's head. And it reminded me of the scene in Spider-Man 1. When Peter Parker is fighting Flash. And Flash and his friend are trying to punch him as hard as they can. And he punches him in the chest once. And Mary Jane goes, dude, what the hell? It confuses me every time because are we just supposed to forget that they were like trying to kill people? So I'm very confused by it.
0: Yeah. Joe Manganiello was really trying to beat Tobey Maguire's ass in that scene.
1: He really was. Those swings were really fast. And I love Spider-Man. So I'll let it go. But I don't love this movie. So I'm not going to let it go.
0: <laughs> it was a ridiculous scene. If you want to watch it on YouTube, it's up. It's a couple minutes, but it was pretty ridiculous. But again, this movie just had so many ridiculous elements of it and so much unexplained elements of it, too.
1: Like the glowing hands?
0: The glowing hands. What exactly were his powers? I have no fucking clue. He had like Magic? some form of strength slash could make people, do like, push them far away, but also... There were these guns that the bad guys shot, and they had some red glowy shit in them. But I'm not exactly sure what that red glowy stuff was. But he
1: could stop him with his hands.
0: But he could stop it with his hands, and I don't understand why. Just none of it was ever explained. It was like, just why would you
1: ever use the guns if the guy can just stop it with his hands? Yeah,
0: it was just this kid who had magic powers, and then they had these magic glowy knives that magically killed anybody who got cut by them, and these people turned into sand and dust, which was also not explained. There there's just a lot of things that weren't explained in this movie, and that does go into my little detail that I'll talk about later. But this movie was just very bothersome, entertaining as hell to watch, very fun to watch because it was bad, but not great at all.
1: Can we keep ragging on this movie? Because I if you it. have
0: more weaknesses, go ahead.
1: Great. He has glowing hands and everybody sees it and then they just let him get away with saying, oh, it was a.
0: A magic trick.
1: Uh, Yeah, a prank with a flashlight, I think he calls it. Yeah,
0: that's what it was. Sorry, it wasn't a magic
1: trick, but he's like, it's
0: just a prank. With
1: a flashlight, with apparently two flashlights, because you have two hands, and there's light glowing out of both of them.
0: And how would you classify that as a prank? Because he was in class, his hands started glowing, he started sweating and having a preemptive panic attack, and then ran out of class as fast as he could into the janitor's closet. So who exactly would he have been pranking because he was the one who ran out of the classroom?
1: Yeah, I have no idea, but I have more on the glowing hands. Go ahead. So eventually they do this haunted hayride. And it seems like a nice haunted hayride.
0: That's one of my strengths for this movie, by the way. Nice haunted hayride. Seems fun, well-produced, well-staged, good haunted hayride.
1: So after the haunted hayride, he gets attacked with Sarah, his soon-to-be girlfriend or whatever you would want to classify her as. Love interest. Sure, love interest. But he starts beating these people up with his superpowers and only one person is like, hey, I know about you. And it wasn't any of the people getting beat up. It's like, hey, this guy was punching in the face with glowing hands. You didn't notice anything.
0: They were all too scared of him to say anything about what they saw, which doesn't make any actual sense. If I was getting beat up by someone in the woods Who had glowy flashlight hands. I'd be telling a lot of people
1: about it. My last weakness for this movie is Mark James, the quarterback bully, is suddenly good in the end, but we never get explained why.
0: No idea. Because he's in cahoots with his dad, who's the sheriff of the town, trying to bust who beat up his son and beat up his friends. And none of them are telling. So he goes to John Smith and is like, I know you were there. Someone's got to talk. But then, yeah, he becomes good out of nowhere for no reason.
1: But that's all I have for weaknesses.
0: Let's go into strengths for this movie, then. Let's try and find some strengths in this movie. I had two. Pretty good Haunted Hayride was first. Second one, which I think you will agree with me on. Top tier dog acting.
1: The dog acting was pretty good.
0: Pretty good. So he finds this abandoned beagle, which you just never find abandoned beagles, really. They're all beagle mixes. But he finds this abandoned, like, purebred beagle out in front of their house, but easily takes it in, which also bothers me because he knows that these people who can kind of shape, shift, time, travel, do weird shit are trying to find him. And this beagle just appears on his doorstep and he's like, let me take it in. And I got a puppy now. Like you don't think that maybe that's just too convenient that it's there. And it's true. The beagle does end up being good at the end, but it is like some kind of shape shifter that was watching over him and turns into a giant monster. But during this fight, when it's turning into a giant monster and beating this other monster bad guy. I'm sorry we're talking in such generalities. This plot is such crap that I don't even know specifics of any of these things' names.
1: None of these things are explained.
0: No, it doesn't matter. (laughs) So during this fight with the beagle and the monster, the beagle gets hurt and then transforms back into the dog form of the beagle, not the
1: monster form. Which is a smart idea because...
0: It evokes some sympathy because the dog has a hurt little foot and is hobbling around on three legs with his little paw up and it's adorable and top tier dog acting. They taught that dog to hobble on three feet with his one little leg up and he was a great dog actor.
1: I believed that his paw hurt. Great acting.
0: Good boy. Top tier.
1: Three kibbles for him. (laughs) Three three greenies.
0: <laughs> three greenies for him. Yeah. No, super good. And that was my only strength of these movies was <laughs> the dog in the hayride.
1: So I have a real strength and you might disagree with me, but I thought the action scenes were actually pretty decent. All of the running around in the school, doing all the flips. Pretty good.
0: The CGI also was not terrible on it. We've seen some movies that are better rated with worse CGI. The fight between the dog monster and the other bad guy monster really wasn't a bad CGI fight. It wasn't terrible.
1: No, even when he was getting chased through the hallways and had to slam the lockers on the monster. Also pretty cool.
0: Yeah, And it was produced by Michael Bay, so they had some cool booms in there. But also another weird element of it, at one point, number six is like blowing up a house. And as she's walking away from the explosion, they're playing Rolling in the Deep by Adele, which makes no sense for the movie. It's just so ridiculous. But they did have a lot of Michael Bay actiony elements in it, too, which was it kept it fun and entertaining.
1: Yeah. Also, the all the shooting scenes. I love a good shootout.
0: They were good, but the guns were confusing. But yeah, I mean, I think that's all of our strengths for this movie. I think any more would just be pulling to try and find things. So let's transition to your strengths for Argo.
1: Watching this movie, everything that is happening is so nerve wracking. Every very slight thing happening. Buying plane tickets made me nervous. Phones ringing made me nervous. Pieces of paper printing out made me nervous.
0: So I want to talk specifically about these things that you're talking about because that pieces of paper being put together, I think, is super vital to the whole plot of the movie. Right. So the whole movie revolves around the U.S. Embassy being taken over and all of the staff at the embassy are shredding documents, trying to burn documents, get rid of them before the Iranians come in and break into the US Embassy. So, throughout the movie, we see little semblances of these Iranian children who are putting together the shredded pieces of paper to try and put together photos of the people that worked there or identify something about all of the people because these six people escaped from the US Embassy. But there were a ton of hostages and it was the Iranian hostage crisis. So there were a ton of hostages held in the U.S. embassy. So they were still trying to piece together and figured out that there were six people missing and trying to figure out who they were. So that part that you're talking about being nerve wracking was really interesting because as they were doing these things that also made you nervous, like Ben Affleck's character, Tony, got to Iran, found these people got people to buy into this, I'm a location Scott. we're shooting a movie thing, and then got them plane tickets, got them on a plane, but then they canceled the mission and took the plane tickets away. And then everyone was scrambling to get them back. And so as they're doing this, they're piecing together a photo of one of the six escaped Americans. And so you're wondering are they going to get this somehow to the people at the airport and they're not going to be allowed in because they recognize this one single guy? It's all very tense and it doesn't come to fruition like that. They escape and they get out. But that whole scene is incredibly tense and it goes on for about 20 minutes. It's a really long scene of them getting to the airport,
1: boarding the plane. Well, the entire movie is tense. Even the opening scene, which is fantastic, the opening scene of, the embassy being taken over. You can just feel the intensity of this crowd. Whoever they got to do, these crowd actors are amazing.
0: So fun fact about that, Ben Affleck actually gave some of those extras in the crowd cameras to just shoot as they're rioting so it can be shot from the rioters perspective, which I thought was really, really cool.
1: It was. It made you feel like you were in these riots. It felt claustrophobic. And he did a couple things that felt really claustrophobic that being one of them. But the opening scene, once they get in, it goes into this other tense feeling of them telling everyone to shred everything they can. And everyone is running around and I'm still tense. What are they going to find? What are they not going to shred? And it's the opening scene. So from the opening scene all the way till the end, I'm tense. And I think this movie is great. That's the my number one top strength of this movie.
0: I agree. It's intense without being so flooded with action. You talk comparatively between these two movies in our matchup and we have, I am number four that builds on action for the anticipation and the tense moments of this movie. And it's cool that they put these more action heavy things in there, but it doesn't compensate for a shitty script, shitty actors, terrible plot terrible editing. And then you have Argo that doesn't have a lot of whole big action sequences. It's more about the movements of the people, the planning, the plotting, the execution of this plan. And it's so edge of your seat the entire time. And one thing I really liked about this movie, too, is that the setup of it was really great. So you talk even before they invaded the embassy, they set it up so they let you know what's going on in Iran during that time. They have a narrator who talks about what's going on in Iran, what's going on with Iran, the U.S., Canada, all of these things. And they set up the historical context behind this entire story. So you're like, oh, okay, I got it. If you're unfamiliar with what happened, you get it. So then you just get to involve yourself so deeply in this very particular situation.
1: That's another one of my strengths. And it's the fact that this movie could easily be a confusing period piece of U.S. history with a lot of mumbo jumbo that doesn't mean anything to the average American. So I love that they were able to paint it out so clearly that you knew exactly what was happening, exactly everyone's motives.
0: It was great. It was really, really a great movie. And transitioning into one of my strengths for this movie, too, it is the acting of this movie, specifically two actors who I thought were fantastic in this
1: movie. Ooh. Go ahead. Can I guess what who they are? Sure. Because I think they are the only actors that keep this movie from just being intense the entire time. And that would be Alan Arkin and John Goodman. So funny. They
0: are so great in this movie. John Goodman is great in this movie. He plays John Chambers, who is like a makeup and effects guy for these sci-fi movies. He's an actual Oscar winner, too. So a fun fact about this movie is that this is the only Oscar winning best picture movie that also featured an actor portraying someone who has won an Oscar before. So really, really fun based on a true character. I mean, it's based on a true story. So all of this is true. And John Goodman and Alan Arkin set up this fake production company with help of Tony Mendez and the CIA. And it's so convincing and it's so realistic. They have a office, they have a number, they have business cards, everything. And John Goodman comes in and just brings a very light feeling to this film. And there are surprisingly very funny moments in this movie, especially between John Goodman and Alan Arkin as a buddy team. It's really, really good.
1: Yeah. That's another one of my strengths. I wrote down a bunch of strengths and one of them is that this movie just tiptoes this line of intensity and fun and stays on this very narrow line because it could get too intense or too fun, but it does neither. And I love that.
0: And it does neither, but doesn't not land on either one. We've talked about movies that try and throw in a bunch of different elements, but it's so confusing and it doesn't land on one really solidly that it makes the movie kind of a mess. This is a movie that has really greatly timed and paced elements of comedy in it for a very serious biographical drama. And It just all works. It feels like it combines really well. And John Goodman and Alan Arkin, back to them. Alan Arkin was nominated for this movie. And both of them aren't in it a whole entire lot, which goes into my only maybe weakness of this movie is that I wish I would have seen more of their dynamic But then thinking of what we're talking about, I wonder if it would then teeter the line of trying too hard to be funny or trying too hard to put that comedic relief in a movie that doesn't need that much comedic relief. But Overall, they were fantastic in this movie.
1: Yeah, I absolutely love Alan Arkin playing this character that just doesn't give a shit about the movie that he's fake doing. So when he's getting asked questions by the press, he's like, "Ah, I don't know. And at one point, because the press guy keeps pressing him, he tells him it's Argo. Uh, It's Argo, fuck yourself. And I let out a chuckle every time they said it. And they said it a couple times. And I thought it was just so funny. And the way Alan Arkin delivers it the first time, he just has this very quippy voice that he naturally has. And it works so well with the line, but almost every movie has weaknesses. And for me, this one has one weakness, and it is that I never saw the characters as the characters, always as the actors. So I never felt like I was watching Tony Mendez. I felt like I was watching Ben Affleck, Alan Arkin, John Goodman, and Bryan Cranston.
0: That is true. I didn't think about that. And that's an interesting thing to say. I would make an argument for Bryan Cranston's character a little bit because for me it was one of those moments where I was like, oh, hey, it's Bryan Cranston. And then I didn't think of him as Bryan Cranston throughout the movie. He also has a very small role as a CIA agent. And going off your point about John Goodman and Alan Arkin, now that I think about it, it's true because even just doing this podcast, I called him John Chambers once. I didn't call Alan Arkin by Lester at all yet. So it's all very much talking about Not the characters, but the actors. But this was a heavy hitter movie. You had a lot of recognizable people in it, too. Even the six Americans, even some of the people that help them along the way. There's some recognizable secondary characters in this movie. So it packs a punch when it comes to familiarity with actors. So I didn't think about that. For me, I didn't think that it really killed the vibe of the movie. But I see what you're saying.
1: Yeah. And it's not necessarily all that much of a weakness because when actors get so famous, it's really hard to not see them as actors. Every Leonardo DiCaprio movie, he's still Leonardo DiCaprio. That's true. At the end of the day, once you're a certain size, you are the actor and not necessarily the character all the time.
0: With that being said, let's transition into our little details that made a big difference. And we'll keep on Argo and talk a little bit about Argo. One thing that I really liked with Argo, and again, this is based on a true story. So based on how they were trying to figure it out. So when they found out that there were these six Americans who escaped the embassy, the CIA was trying to come up with plans of how they can get them out of Iran. And so they came up with some terrible ideas like let's give them bikes and have them bike 300 miles to the border Which is an awful idea.
1: One of my favorite parts of this movie, I know we already passed strengths, but one of my favorite parts of this movie was that scene. And I know it sounds like I'm just telling you that every scene was my favorite scene, but it was just so funny listening to them go through the different ideas that they had and all of them being bad.
0: And so that is my little detail that makes a big difference is they called this whole plot to make this entire fake movie with this entire fake crew and all of these details and writing a storyboard, writing a script, having a director, having a location scout, having plans to go to Egypt and other places to scout different locations. They called it their best bad idea. And I loved that because they were all bad ideas. I liked that they didn't in this movie make it out to be this golden nugget of an idea because it could have turned out terribly. They were hiding these people in plain sight. They were asking them to play characters and go to the bazaar and go out in public in Iran where they knew people were looking for them and have them not even really disguise themselves, change their hair a little bit wear glasses, little tiny things that didn't make them unrecognizable at all and tried to play them off as a Canadian film crew. So it was not a great idea. It clearly worked and they made it out. But I loved that they called it their best bad idea because all of the other ones were much, much worse. And it just felt like a situation where it felt very humanized, where it's These CIA agents and they're supposed to be super smart and know all of these things. But it's like, fuck, how do you get six people out of Iran when everybody is looking for them? It's crazy. I have an idea. Yeah.
1: You make a fake movie.
0: (laughs) Right. So it was a really clever idea, but it was the best bad idea. And that was my little detail. I thought it set a really fun tone for the movie.
1: It did. So my small detail is Towards the end of the movie, Ben Affleck has to give up all of his stuff to the CIA and he's giving up these panels of storyboarding that they made up and he keeps one. And the one that he keeps is almost exactly what happens when they get on the plane and they're taking off on the runway and they're being chased down the runway. And the panel is a guy on what looks like a speeder, gravity defying speeder bike being chased by other people on a gravity defying speeder bike. And it shows it at the very end and then ends the movie. And I think it's the perfect period to what is this great sentence.
0: I like that. I didn't notice that, but it was very cool because that was such a worrisome moment that he got through. And I love that that was the storyboard he choose to keep and I thought that was really cool.
1: I also loved the storyboard art. I thought it was really good.
0: I agree. They really put a lot of good details into this movie. Going into movies that didn't have the best little details, my little detail for I Am Number 4 is that this is the first movie of this bracket challenge and maybe this isn't a little detail but it's the first movie of this bracket challenge where I felt like this movie was only for fans of the book. It felt like a movie where you needed to read the book to understand the significance. We talk about one of the strengths of Argo being that they set up very nicely for you the historical context of everything that is going to happen in this movie. They set up the plot. They set up who these people are, their ideas, how they came across it. Everything is very clear with this movie and there being so many unexplained elements. This feels like the first movie where I needed to read the book to even start to appreciate this movie or understand this movie. It felt like it was made for people who liked this book and that's it. It didn't feel like a movie to invite people to read this book series. I would never want to read this book series after watching this movie.
1: Really? Not even to fill in the pieces?
0: No, I don't care enough. The movie was so bad, it doesn't make me care enough. But it did feel like it was speaking very specifically to people who are fans of this book, because then they can take the context that they knew from the book and add it on to the movie. And then it feels like you have a complete picture. Maybe if you read the book, I don't know. It just felt like you needed to know certain aspects of the book to understand this movie or even begin to appreciate it.
1: Do you think there's a diehard fan of this movie out there?
0: There's diehard fans of everything. There absolutely is. There's someone around who loves this movie. I mean, someone recommended this movie to us, so they liked it enough to recommend it to us to watch. But to be fair, we know why this person recommended this movie, and it was because it's not great, but the action scenes are kind of fun and okay, which... We agree with that. So there are people out there who like this movie. There are people out here, there, I'm sure, that love this movie and think it's underrated or underscored. I don't agree with those people. I don't understand why they think that, but they do. There's a pot for every lid.
1: I bet there's someone out there who is, I'm going to say they're around 30 now, maybe getting up there. That loved the book series so much and they have those ridiculous things tattooed on their legs. You know, everyone with Harry Potter gets the triangle and the circle and the line through it. The Deathly Hollows tattoo? Yep, that thing.
0: What would you even get for this
1: movie? The random little things that are on their legs. Oh,
0: the little spiral things. Yeah. For whatever reason, I just automatically thought people had... Beagle tattoos of the dog. (laughs) And that was what symbolized this movie because I totally forgot that they also had matching weird tattoo scar things that I also don't believe were explained at all
1: of why they looked like they looked
0: or why they were etched into their body multiple times. I don't get it. But
1: I bet there's someone walking around with a couple of those on their leg.
0: There might be. I bet you're right. There's probably somebody if we Googled it right now, there would be somebody.
1: And they're going to hate this podcast. Fine. So my small detail going into my small detail is I love that this movie gave some love to one time pro bowler Bernie Kosar.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's Bernie Kosar. He played
1: football. So if you don't know about Bernie Kosar... He was the last good, I mean, he was a one-time Pro Bowler, so he was okay at one point. He was the last good quarterback the Browns had, and he earned that Pro Bowl in 1984. And I love that he just got a little love. I don't think he gets love that often.
0: I surely didn't know who he was, so now I know.
1: Especially outside of the Cleveland area. I'm sure outside of Ohio, nobody really appreciates him in 2020.
0: That's fair. But I'm also just thankful that they took time to explain who he was as they were staring at a picture of him throwing a football.
1: I would have never known.
0: Would have never known. Thank God they provided that clarification. Some plot lines were clarified. Others just left us in the dark.
1: Who's this guy and what is he doing? That's Bernie Kosar. He's throwing a football. (laughs) Uh, Okay.
0: Got it. So... I think that ends all of our details. I think we could probably go on forever for strengths and weaknesses for certain movies. And there's no secret of that. I think we can talk about strengths of Argo for quite some time. I think we could talk about fun weaknesses of I am number four for quite some time. So, with that being said, let's do another very unsurprising 3, 2, 1 countdown. Ready? Three, two, one. Argo. Oh no. Argo moves on to the next round of our bracket challenge. A really, really great movie. I am number four. Maybe try it out if you want something lighthearted, but also super not memorable. We didn't talk about that aspect of it, but we watched some bad movies that are super memorable. One that comes to mind is in our past bracket challenge. We watched Deep Blue Sea. That plotline-wise, action-wise, was a little laughable and comical, but we still remember it and talk about it all the time. The it was entertaining. Great. It's it w- great. It was so fun. But this one, we had fun thinking of weaknesses for it. But I won't remember this movie in a few months time. I won't remember anything about it.
1: When I buy you a Bernie Kosar jersey.
0: We'll I can't wait back. You can put a poster of him in our hallway and then when anybody comes over and you give them a house tour, you can say that's Bernie Kosar. He played football as they're staring at a poster of him throwing a football in full uniform during a game. So anyways, we have Argo, and that is moving on to our next round. Very exciting. We're starting to see things match up for the next round now because we're halfway through our bracket challenge. So this is pretty much the official second half of our bracket challenge. This is our... 17th matchup so we're starting to see how the bracket is turning out which is really really exciting but also very scary because spoiler alert this one is going up against lion in the next round and we loved both of these movies so this is going to be a really really hard bracket challenge to narrow down to one winner i think but if you guys want to check out your brackets and see how you're doing see what your place is you can go on chalange You can check out our Instagram profile. We just posted a picture the other day of what our bracket is looking like thus far. We'll start posting more of those in our stories. So please give us a like, give us a follow. Follow us on Twitter as well. If you need to catch up on any of our past podcasts, you can find them on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Anchor, and Breaker. And then you can check out our next podcast, which is going to drop on Friday, September 11th. And that will be between Rosemary's Baby which is our second seed versus Valley of the Dolls, which is our 15th seed.
1: And for the cinema matchups, we are Kim Kohler and Sean Rodenberg Our go fuck yourself.
0: (laughs) Thank you for listening. And we will see you guys next time.